Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure we are in fellowship. We'll open in a word of prayer. A couple of prayer requests have come across or come to my attention in the last day. One is one that some of you may be aware of. I just found out last night. Uh, some of you know Kendall Weeks. Uh, Kendall Weeks went through seminary up at uh, uh, Western Conservative uh, Theological Seminary in Portland and has been involved in various ministries and pastoring in the Portland area for the last several years. And Kendall has terminal colon cancer. He has, I don't know, two or three kids. Is that right, Claude? Two kids? And so, uh, and they're like nine and seven. So we need to be in, in prayer for, uh, for Kendall. Also, I mentioned on Tuesday night that I had received an email from uh, Jim Myers that they had moved into a new house and that they had had extremely cold temperatures, minus 20, minus 25 at night with highs during the day in the single digits, and that's Fahrenheit, that's not uh, Celsius. So uh, he said the heat's on and working but it's not quite as warm as his apartment had been. And I thought, well, minus 25, I don't know what would be. But he is, he, things are slowly coming together. He's going to have a phone, set, phone line in within another couple of days, and he'll actually have a high-speed Internet connection. Out, he's in a little village. It's about as far out. I mean, if you've been around Houston for a while, you remember what Katie was like back around 1970? Jim moved out to a little village that would be comparable to Katie to Houston. So he's out in the, he is really out in the sticks. So it's amazing he has that. But Kiev is rapidly expanding, and this area where he's moved to is supposed to have a couple of large factories go in within the next couple of years. So it's a, it's a high, it really is a high growth area. Before we get started, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to focus and study the Word this evening. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to come boldly before your throne of grace. We thank you for the fact that you have provided everything for us, for our spiritual life, at the instant of our salvation, that it is all part of the free grace package. It's all part of our unique spiritual life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study in Hebrews, that we might, like the recipients of this epistle, be willing to accept a challenge to press on to spiritual maturity despite any opposition, despite uh, threats of adversity. Father, we pray that we might recognize all that we have in Christ and be willing to live it out to its fullest in our own spiritual life. We especially remember uh, Kendall and his family during this time. We pray that if possible you would heal him, but if this is a test that they need to go through, that it would be an opportunity for them to glorify you, that as his children and wife go through this test and his friends, that it would be an opportunity for them to advance in, to, in their spiritual growth. We also pray for Jim uh, Myers and the move and that he would get settled and work out the other logistical details that are still uh, problematical. also pray for Mark Perkins while he is over there this week and next teaching that he might have an effective ministry with the students there. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we started our study of Hebrews, I think. Now, I'm going to have a problem tonight. As most of you know, my uh, regular pulpit glasses that I've used for about seven or eight years disappeared when I went to Kiev. So I got new glasses, and they've got these graduated lenses and they're bifocals, and that means that unless you're in this sort of cone right here in the middle, the rest of y'all look warped. And whenever I turn, 
I feel like I'm seasick. So we're going to find out if these glasses really work. They say it's to give them a week to adjust, but I've got to find the little sweet spot so I can read my notes. So if I make any mistakes tonight, we'll just blame it on the glasses. Okay, last time we got started in Hebrews, talking about the enigma of Hebrews. This is an unusual epistle. It's unique in the sense that we don't know who wrote it. We don't know why he wrote it or the occasion of the epistle. We don't know who the recipients, the original recipients were to whom he wrote. We don't know uh, what their situation was. We don't know where they were located. Nevertheless, this book is included in the canon of Scripture and has been recognized as such since the 4th century A.D. and was recognized as authoritative, as we'll see, by the end of the first century, and tonight we will get into some of the issues related to canonicity. Now, last time we started off by talking about just the fact that it was an enigma. People didn't know who it was written to or who wrote it, and that was one reason it was not part of the canon or was considered among the, the doubtful books for quite a long time. They weren't sure who wrote it, so they didn't know if it had uh, apostolic Support. I also looked at the issue of the form of this epistle. We call it an epistle because at the end it seems to have certain characteristics of an epistle, but it doesn't begin like an epistle. There's not an initial address which you typically find in a letter, just as we have a format that we follow when we write a letter. We put in the date, we put in the address of the uh, person to whom we are writing, and then we begin with, Dear So-and-So. This is standard format for writing a, a, a letter in America. But in the ancient world, you would start off, and you would say to the Ephesians, from the Apostle Paul and whoever was with him. And then you would begin, and maybe there might be a short salutation. This is missing from Hebrews. It just begins with one of the most profound and pregnant sentences in all of the New Testament. And as I looked at it, I said, as we looked at it last week, I pointed out in Hebrews 13.22 that the writer himself refers to this book as a word of exhortation. And that phrase, word of exhortation, is used one other time in the Scriptures in uh, Acts and in uh, Acts, it indicates that it was a particular kind of message, a message of encouragement when Paul is writing to, uh, when Paul was speaking at uh, Pisidian Antioch and the synagogue and he was asked to give a uh, message or word of encouragement in Acts 13, uh, 15 and following. And it seems to be a doctrinal exposition. There it is an evangelistic message, or evangelistic in its thrust. So a word of exhortation is a challenge. I like that word better than exhortation. That flows from an understanding of what the text says. So there is a development of doctrinal principles, an exposition of the text. In Paul's case, in Acts 13, he summarized in about... Four verses, all of the Old Testament, from the call of Abraham through the Davidic covenant, in four verses, and then he jumps over the rest of the Old Testament, lands firmly on the baptism and the ministry of John the Baptist, spent three or four verses on the ministry of John the Baptist, and then he went from there into the work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection, ending with a challenge to the Jews in the synagogue that they needed to accept Jesus as Messiah. Now, that's the thrust of a word of exhortation. It's not a brief little emotional devotional, but it builds on content. And this is, of course, something that is sadly lacking uh, today in, in most contexts and in many, many churches, is they, they're afraid they're going to uh, scare people away by getting into the Word. You know, it's a, kind of a sad thing that we run into in many cases that folks think that if you, if you dumb things down, you'll attract more people. Rather than presenting a high standard, a high challenge to folks and 
hopefully gaining those who are truly interested in learning, whatever it may be, whether it's in business, whether it's in a university setting, whether it's in a school setting or church setting, hold a high standard for people and attract people who are truly interested in quality and maintaining uh, that high standard, and that's true in every area of life. Uh, most of us would rather, if we had the opportunity, go to an Ivy League school, that is, if they, if they had their act together academically in terms of teaching the truth, would rather go to a school that was challenging and quality-based than go to just a local community college. Same is true for a local church. We want to have a church that's known for quality, not that we're talking over people's heads or something of that nature, but that we know that our focus is on the Word of God, that that is the, the focal point of everything that's going on in the church. It's not uh, secondary ministries. There's all kinds of secondary ministries that can go on in a church that are, that are valid, that are significant, that can be meaningful, but you have to keep the secondary ministry secondary and the primary ministry primary, and as long as doctrine is taught from the pulpit and in the classes and music ministries or evangelistic ministries, prison ministries, whatever they may be, are, are secondary, then that's how things should be run. But you always maintain quality control. Always shoot for the, for the highest standard uh, possible. This is what Paul was doing. It's a solid piece of, of ex- exposition in Acts chapter 13. And this is what the writer of Hebrews does in his development. He starts off in the first chapter weaving together eight different Old Testament quotations, assuming that his readers are fully versed in these passages and their context. And from the weaving together of these eight quotations, he begins to build certain theological conclusions. And in the first chapter, his focus is on establishing the superiority of Jesus as the Son in terms of his deity and his superiority over the angels. And then in the first four verses of chapter 2, he draws a conclusion, a practical application. Therefore, in light of this doctrinal truth, this is what, how it should affect your decision-making, and this is how it should affect your life, and this is how he builds. And then in the next section, he comes along and he takes ideas that were introduced or words that were just thrown in there in the first chapter, and he begins to unpack those words and those concepts, weaving them together with each other and then picking up strands from the first chapter, and he builds to the next level, and he punches with another uh, doctrinal application and warning at the end of that section, and then he takes it to the next level. So it's like climbing a set of stairs until you come to the last section in the in the book, there are five basic sections in the book of Hebrews. Now, we'll look at this under organization uh, before we finish this evening. But these five basic sections build to the final section in chapter 11, which presents the doctrinal principle. And then in chapter 12 and 13, there are two uh, basic practical exhortations and and warnings. And the writer of Hebrews under, uh, writes as if he expects his listeners, to be fully aware of everything that he's weaving into this book. And that means that he expects them to be fully cognizant of the Old Testament context of all of these passages. No book in the New Testament quotes as much from the Old Testament as Hebrews does. So he expects that the audience is fully versed in Levitical sacrifices, fully versed in the ritual of the tabernacle services, fully versed in all of the principles related to the priesthood, and not only that, fully versed in the context of all these uh, various psalms that he quotes. Sad to say that that's not true for most of us, and that's not true for most Christians today because we're, we're just having impoverished understanding of the Old Testament and Old Testament theology, and, and that's not really to blame or to bash the everyday Christian, because I find that when you start teaching the Old Testament to 
uh, everyday folks in the pew, they really enjoy it. I think people really relate to the Old Testament. They, they understand the people. There's more of a commonality there. I think too often there are pastors who really enjoy the detailed theological argumentation of the Apostle Paul, and so they want to camp out there. They're, they're, of course, they're, they want to emphasize the spiritual life teachings for the church age, and that's true, and that's valid. But we can carry that so far that, that we have congregations that are ignorant. Remember when Paul wrote that, that well-known verse, I bet everybody here can quote, that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that when he wrote that in the previous verse, he told Timothy that it was by these Scriptures that he came to spiritual maturity. Now, there wasn't a New Testament when he wrote that. So when he writes 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, and he says all Scripture is God-breathed, while it applies to New Testament Scripture, of course, and some New Testament, if not most New Testament Scripture, about maybe 60% had been written by the time he wrote that verse, it certainly hadn't been collected. There wasn't a canon developed at that point. His primary point of reference from the context is the Old Testament. So we need to be aware of the Old Testament. And that uh, the problem, I think, is just pastors who don't teach the Old Testament, don't spend the time there. I know of one pastor who recently went to be with the Lord up in the Dallas area, and he had a, uh, a ministry that lasted over 50 years, 53, 54 years. All he ever did in 53, 54 years was teach the Pauline epistles. Now, that's great, and he did a great job doing it. But nobody in the congregation understood the Old Testament because he never taught it. So we need to get into, into the Old Testament, and we will as we get work our way through Hebrews. Now, I looked at the issues related to the form of the letter and concluded it was a sermon. This was uh, probably originally given as, a, as an oral address, as a Bible class. And perhaps the... A uh, person who wrote the notes, wrote it down, took down the notes, and then it was cleaned up and sent out as a, as a letter which would account for the closing comments, uh, personal greetings at the end of the book that make it look like, like an epistle. With regard to the date, I pointed out that the date itself is connected to an understanding of who the recipients are. And there's two views as to who... Who is being addressed here? Almost everyone agrees that the addressees are Jews, Jewish Christians who are under persecution for their faith, and because of the extreme adversity or suffering that they're about to encounter, they're waffling. They're just about to give up. They're just about to chuck their Christian life and go back to Judaism. And so they are being warned against that and the dire consequences of extended carnality. Now, we don't know where they were located. Some people have suggested uh, a number of different locations, all the way from Spain in the, in the west to uh, Israel, Palestine in the east. But we don't know. Now, depending on whether you want to put them in somewhere around Jerusalem or somewhere around Rome, it's going to affect your date. Now, if we were to assume that they were in Jerusalem, I pointed out last time that this would entail an earlier date, sometime early in the 60s, because Vespasian is going to bring the Roman army into Judea about, 60, about A.D. 66. And so there's no mention of that here. There's no mention of, of the, the rebellion against Rome, and so it seems likely that if the recipients are a community of Jewish believers in Judea, that uh, the letter would have to be written before 66. Now, that presents a problem. And the problem is that at the end of Hebrews, there is a mention that Timothy is about to be released from prison. Now, Paul goes into his second imprisonment somewhere around 65 to 66, and Paul dies, he's martyred, somewhere around late 67 or early 68. So he writes Second Timothy 
about 66 to 67, probably sometime in late 67. And that means that up to that point, Timothy hasn't been in prison. So you can't get an early date for Hebrews, 61, 62, something like that, in that context. So that seems to suggest that it was written late, probably 67, 68, and it may have been written, or more, and if that's the case, if that's the case, it would have been written to a community in Rome, and we'll see the issues there. Well, we covered that, and I'm going to suggest that the date is rather late, that in my opinion, probably 67 to 68, but anybody who gets too dogmatic on any of this just... Well, they're on the verge of losing touch with reality. We just don't know. Uh, All we can do is study the text and draw inferences from the text. The author. I pointed out that it's unknown last time. I said there's a lot of different suggestions. Some people think it was Paul. In fact, for many years, Bibles had the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Many of the King James uh, editions had that. Others thought that Paul was the author, but Luke took it down. Paul taught it in Hebrew, and Luke wrote it down in Greek. Others thought that it was uh, perhaps Barnabas in the early church. There was a tremendous tradition that Barnabas wrote uh, Hebrews. Then when you get into more modern times, Luther thought it was Apollos. And Apollos has many modern adherents who believe it was Apollos because he was from Alexandria. And the Scripture says that he was a great orator, a great teacher. And the phrase that's used to describe him is a technical phrase that was used to indicate somebody who had been well-educated in rhetoric and was a professional rhetorician in the ancient world. And that, of course, would fit, uh, would fit Apollos. And the Greek that is used in the book of Hebrews is the finest Greek, the highest form of Greek used in the New Testament. And its literary style is better than any other Greek in the New Testament. So this would indicate that the author is well-educated, that he is a, because of the way he constructs his sentences and the way he articulates his position, he would... He indicates that he was a well-trained rhetorician, so this could possibly fit Apollos. But we don't know. Others have suggested Clement of Rome, who was a leader in the uh, Roman church towards the end of the first century. Uh, Silas, who accompanied Paul on many of his journeys, also known as Silvanus, who wrote down uh, one, of the, uh, one of Peter's epistles, Luke, uh, Barnabas, Philip, and some have even thought it might be Priscilla. So there's just a cornucopia of suggestions as to who wrote Hebrews, but the final conclusion is we don't know. He's well-trained, though. One statistic is that there's 4,942 words in Hebrews. The writer uses 1,038 different words, that is, from the other epistles. And uh, 169 are found only, 169 of those uh, 1,038 distinct words, unique words, 169 are found only in Hebrews in the New Testament. That is, they're not found outside in, in uh, other literature. So this writer is, has a tremendous vocabulary. Okay, that sort of reviews last week. New material. Who is this addressed to? Well, everybody says, well, it's to the Hebrews. Just, just open your Bible. It says to the Hebrews. But that's not on the original manuscript. In fact, the title to the Hebrews was not added to, a manus- to, the, to the book until A.D. 175. So roughly 110 years after it was written, they attached a title to it to the Hebrews, and that is just a tradition. The original did not have a specific title. Tertullian, who was a church leader towards the end of the second century, and later Clement of Alexandria, who lived about, flourished about 200, uh, spoke of this book as if as being written to the Hebrews. This was the tradition handed down in the second 
century. Some have suggested that it was written to Gentiles, but we know that the readers were probably not Gentiles for a number of reasons. First of all, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, it talks about elementary doctrines, that we need to press on beyond these elementary doctrines related to Christ, and the context suggests these were doctrines from the Old Testament related to the Messiah. And it assumes a familiarity with the Old Testament. This wouldn't have been true uh, about Gentiles. Furthermore, in chapters 8 through 10, there's an emphasis on the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. This is one of the most interesting problems in Hebrews. Who are the recipients of the New Covenant? Are there two New Covenants? Uh, dispensationalists have debated this in the past. Is there, is there a new covenant to the church, a new covenant to Israel, or is there only one new covenant? I believe there's only one new covenant. Every passage, Old Testament, New Testament, that articulates the new covenant says that it is a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Now, remember, a covenant is a contract. It's a legal document. So if that document stipulates that this is God making the contract, and he's making it with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Where does the church fit in? And earlier uh, dispensationalists had posited that there was a separate new covenant with the church, but it's not really stipulated any, anywhere other than one statement by the Apostle Paul that he was a minister of the new covenant. Now, we'll get into all the details of this, but the bottom line is that if you have two parties, party of the first part is God, uh, also Jesus Christ, party of the second part is the house of Judah and the house of Israel, then how does the church fit? Church fits because we are in Christ. We don't come in on the party of the second part side. We come in on the party of the first part side. We are in Christ, and we benefit from the New Covenant as recipients of the blessings of the New Covenant. In the same way that in the Old Testament, God, as part of the first part, makes a covenant with Abraham, part of the second part, and within that contract he says, I will bless those who bless you, and you will be a blessing to whom? To all the Gentiles. The blessing paragraph of the Abrahamic covenant is literally expanded in the New Covenant. So the New Covenant is made between God and Israel, and the blessings flow out from that to the Gentiles. And this is based on the pattern of Abraham and based on the pattern of the Mosaic Covenant, and it preserves the distinction between Israel and the church, but it puts the priority on Israel. Remember, as we studied in, on Tuesday nights with Abraham, that starting with Genesis 12, God has determined that in human history, He is working through the Jews. Every, all the blessings in human history flow out from His relationship to Israel. And the church benefits from the new covenant with Israel as blessing recipients. We'll get into all of that in chapter 8. But in chapter 8 through 10, there's this emphasis on the Old Covenant, that they're no longer under the Old Covenant. Well, that wouldn't apply to Gentiles, because Gentiles were never under the Old Covenant. Gentiles were never part of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was only between God and the Jews, and it had to do with their, their legal structures while they were in the land as a nation. third reason it wouldn't be Gentiles is that in Hebrews 7, verse 11... There's a technical argument presented by the writer that presupposes or assumes the authority of the Old Testament. And the very fact that he just so almost uh, superficially uh, accepts the fact that his readers accept the authority of the Old Testament indicates that this is not an issue. In other words, he... It, the, the very fact that he can make this argument suggests that his readers already accepted the Old Testament as the Word of God. Now, this brings up something that's fascinating in the book of Hebrews. He consistently quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 2, Psalm 110, n- numerous psalms. Whenever he quotes from the psalms, 
he just he'll introduce it as God said. Only one time in this book does the writer say the scriptures say. Isn't that interesting? Now, what, what do you think that means? Well, in the Old Testament, we know that Psalm 2 was written by David. But when the writer of Hebrews quotes it, he says, God said. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that he accepts the divine authorship of the Old Testament. He accepts the fact that God is writing through human writers. He believes in the inerrancy and the inspiration and fallibility of Scripture. The battle today is that liberals want to say, well, the Old Testament was just written by people who had a certain religious consciousness, and it's describing their uh, coming to an understanding of who God is. It's not revelation in the distinct authoritative sense that, that we understand it to be. And the writer of Hebrews confirms our understanding of the inspiration of Scripture by the way he quotes Scripture. God said it. doesn't matter that it may have been David, it may have been some other prophet, it may have been Abraham or Moses. The writer of Hebrews says it came from God. That's an extremely high view of Scripture. A fourth reason that we know that this wasn't written to Gentiles was that there are numerous idioms used in the book of Hebrews that are based on Old Testament episodes. These idioms would have just gone right over the heads of any Gentile readers. For example, he uses the phrase, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. This is based on an understanding of, what, of the ritual related to the tabernacle. And if you don't understand that, you wouldn't understand what the idiom uh, referred to. You, you have to come to Hebrews with some understanding of the function of the tabernacle, the function of the priesthood, and the function of the Levitical, uh, Levitical laws, or you're lost. Furthermore, in developing that idea, there's an emphasis on priestly ritual, which seems to indicate that the readers themselves were former members of the Jewish priesthood. This intricate knowledge on the priesthood, referring to all the different activities of the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical priests, indicates a technical knowledge of the priesthood on the part of the readers. And many people believe that it's a, this was a group of Jewish believers who were former priests. Now, we know from uh, extra-biblical sources that there were a large number of priests that did become Christians in the first, in the first century. So perhaps this is part of that, that contingent. Furthermore, the readers to whom he is writing, the readers seem to accept the authority of the Greek Old Testament. Now, that's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint. Now, somebody asked me about this the other night. Septuagint is spelled like this, S-E-P-T-U-A-G-I-N-T. Sept from 70. And the legend was that 70 Jewish rabbis translated the Torah in 70 days. After the Diaspora, there, was, there remained a large contingent of Jews in Alexandria in North Egypt. And after a couple of generations, they could no longer speak Hebrew or read Hebrew. And starting about uh, 200 uh, to 250 B.C., I'm writing that backwards from about 250 B.C. to 200 B.C., there was a move to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek so that the average Jew could read it and understand it. And this is known as the Septuagint, and it is tr usually abbreviated by LXX. And this is the Roman numeral for 70. And so it's often referred to not only as the Septuagint, but just in shorthand as the LXX. And this is the... This is the Bible that these Old Testament quotes come from. They don't come out of the Hebrew Masoretic text because there are various differences between the Septuagint and the, um, and the Masoretic text. Now, some people say, well, what, what, what exactly does that 
does that imply about inerrancy? Well, it's not that the, it, the differences were uh, introduced error or introduced false teaching or introduced bad theology. Under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, even though the reading in the Septuagint might be varied, if God the Holy Spirit quoted it, now that translation also became inspired and inerrant. Even though it didn't accurately translate the original in the Masoretic text or the original in the, in the Hebrew version, we know that, that once the Holy Spirit quotes it, that puts his stamp of approval on that variation. So the variation would not necessarily be or would not be wrong or introduce uh, error. And this leads us into the next point, and that is that the writer assumes that the readers have an in-depth knowledge of the Old Testament and have been trained in Old Testament theology from the, from the Septuagint. For example, in Hebrews 2, verse 2, the writer says, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast in every transgression, disobedience received a just reward. Now, this is a powerful verse, and we'll see it when we get there. But he's talking about the Mosaic Law. And he says, if the word spoken through angels. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter uh, 17 and following, you'll look in vain for any mention of angels up on Mount Sinai with Moses. They're just not there. Now, we studied this a little bit in our study of Revelation. But if you look at Deuteronomy 33.2, which is the verse at the bottom of the slide, Deuteronomy 33.2 there is a mention of angels. There Moses is rehearsing, reminding the Jews of what took place on Mount Sinai. He's speaking to the next generation. The, their fathers had already died. The Exodus generation had all died under, under divine discipline other than Joshua and Caleb. And Deuteronomy is Moses' final sermon, his final message. It was all given as one sermon. Just think about that sometime. You know, stand up and read the book of Deuteronomy. Well, that's what it was initially. It was a sermon. Most, most people can't sit still long enough to concentrate on something like that, but that's what it was. The name Deuteronomy means second law, Deuteronomos, second law, and it is a reiteration of the Mosaic law and an exposition of the Mosaic law for the generation that is going to go into the land and conquer the land. And in that, Moses says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Mount Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. Now, if you've got a King James or New King James, it translates it saints, but it should be holy ones. It's referring to the angels that accompanied uh, the Lord when he gave the Mosaic Law. At his right hand, it says, there was flashing lightning for them. Now, the Septuagint reads a little different on that last clause. The Septuagint reads, angels were with him at his right hand, and there was flashing lightning for them. It adds this phrase to make it, I think the uh, translator wanted to make it clear what was happening here, that these angels were at God's right hand. So see that's not introducing error, but once the once if if that verse were to have been quoted in the in the uh, New Testament, by quoting it, it the Holy Spirit would put his stamp of approval on that addition as being correct. So even though it wasn't in the original and wasn't inspired in the Septuagint, it becomes inspired and infallible once it's included by the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Okay, so it's clear he's writing to Jews, not Gentiles. Now, where were these Jews? Were they in Jerusalem? Is this before 66 A.D., before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? Yes, it is, because there's no mention of the destruction of the temple. But we don't know the exact location. The two most popular, two most common views are that this was a group of uh, former Jewish priests in Judea. Others claim that no, it was a group, probably former Jewish priests, in Rome as part of the Church of Rome. 
So these are the two views. What are the reasons for thinking that it was a group in Judea? There are five basic reasons given. First of all, there is an absence of a Jew-Gentile conflict in this epistle. We run into that in other epistles, but there's no indication of a Jew-Gentile conflict here. And this would indicate a fairly homogenous group that was all Jewish. So, therefore, there are those who suggest it must have been a group in Judea. Secondly, Clement of Rome, who writes a little later, his epistle to the Corinthians is dated at 95. Clement referred to the church in Jerusalem as the church of the Hebrews. So that would indicate that if this is the epistle to the Hebrews, and that's the church of the Hebrews, that that was perhaps written to a group in Judea. Third, there's the indication in the book of Hebrews that there's some impending judgment there's an imminent, uh, there's some sort of imminent attack or some high level of suffering that is expected, and it is the expectation of this increased adversity, this uh, intensified level of suffering that they're about to encounter, that is the occasion for this book because they're they're getting ready to bail out. Like many people, you, we've all been there. Sometimes it's been us. We're, get, we're about to experience some level of suffering or we're going through some level of suffering and we start thinking, why is it that I'm a Christian? You know, if I weren't, I used to think, I thought this one time when I was in college, if I weren't a believer, if I weren't trying to do this, I wouldn't be a target in the angelic conflict. So if I just, you know, cave in and give up and become a... Uh, sort of a secret service Christian where nobody knows, then I won't be a target in the angelic conflict and I can avoid all this suffering. Well, we know it doesn't work like that because then God starts working on you and you're under divine discipline and that's even worse. So judgment appears to be imminent and since this is in the mid-60s and of course we know that Vespasian is getting ready to invade Judea or already has by the time of the writing of this epistle. It appears that the prophecies of Matthew 24 are about to take place. So that would fit a scenario of Judea sometime 64, 65 just before Rome invades. There's an indication that these were former priests. They really know and understand Old Testament ritual. Where would you find a large number of ex-Levitical priests other than in Judea? And then the fifth line of reasoning is that their familiarity with the Old Testament was so great that this, of course, might suggest uh, being in, in Judea. Well, those are all pretty strong arguments, it seems, but there are problems with this. In Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4, there's a suggestion that they didn't hear the gospel directly from Jesus. They heard it indirectly through secondary sources. Now, 65 is only 30 years after the crucifixion. You wouldn't, if anybody was over, let's say over 40 in that congregation, they would have been witnesses to the crucifixion, witnesses to the first advent witnesses to the ministry of Christ during the first advent. So if, if these readers were in Judea, it would seem that some of them would have been direct witnesses of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second problem is that their knowledge of sacrifices seems to be based on Old Testament passages and tabernacle passages, not temple practices. There's no mention of the temple in, in all of Hebrews. No mention of temple sacrifices. It's all tabernacle, tabernacle, tabernacle. That would indicate that it was an audience of people who had never been to Jerusalem and been to the temple. Furthermore, in Hebrews 6, verses 10 and 11, there's the indication that the, that the readers were wealthy enough to have generously given financial aid to other congregations that were in trouble. Now, what we know of the Jerusalem church during the latter part of the first century is that they went through famines, they were persecuted, they were poor. Paul was the one who was taking up collections for the church in Jerusalem throughout his second and third missionary journeys. So it doesn't seem to fit 
fit the scenario. These, these believers seem to be wealthy enough to help others. They don't seem to be on the receiving end of aid. Furthermore, there's no mention of the temple at all. So that seems to suggest that, that perhaps it, they weren't in, in Judea. Rome is the other place that's suggested, and, and I think that it's a little heavier in that direction. First of all, Rome is the first place where this book is known historically. By 95, 30 years later, Clement of Rome is quoting extensively from this book. He demonstrates in-depth familiarity, as we'll see, on, uh, with, with the book of Hebrews. He was very familiar with it. Furthermore, in, there were a group of persecutions. This is the second reason. There was a, a, a significant persecution under Claudius directed against the Jews. He expelled all the Jews from Rome in 49. And this may fit the mention, the indication in the book of Hebrews where, where the writer talks about an earlier period of suffering that they had gone through, where the Jews were being persecuted in Italy. In Hebrews 10.32, there's a mention of Melchizedek. Actually, this runs through several chapters where there's a mention of Melchizedek. And the only, historically, the only early church that had Melchizedek mentioned in their early writings and in their liturgy was in Rome. You don't find Melchizedek mentioned other places, so there's, there's that connection. Fourth reason... In Hebrews 13:24, there is this greeting that those from Italy greet you. Those from Italy greet you, and this uses the uh, Greek preposition "apo." Those from Italy, A-P-O. Those who have left or departed from Italy greet you. This phrase, from Italy, occurs one other time in the New Testament, and it's used in reference to, in Acts 18.2, to describe Aquila and Priscilla when they were currently in Corinth. They were from Rome. They had left Rome. They were no longer in Rome. So this phrase, from Italy or from Rome, is talking about people who aren't, it's not talking about people who are currently living in Rome, but those who had previously lived in Italy or in Rome. So the writer is saying that there are those here from Italy who send you greetings. That's the thrust of that particular phrase. So in light of this, it indicates perhaps a Roman or Italian, uh, Italian uh, home for this group. The last piece of evidence here comes from Hebrews 13, verses, 7, verses 17 and 24. The leaders of the group are referred to by the Greek word hegumenoi. Now, this is really interesting. The O-I is your plural ending, H-E-G-O-U-M-E-N-O-I, hegumenoi. There's a Greek verb, hegeo, hegeomai, which is the verb form of this root. And hegeomai means to think, to reason, or to consider. So this word has as its primary meaning the thinkers. But it came to be a word that was used for those who were in leadership. Principle. A leader is a thinker. A leader is a thinker. It's someone who knows how to analyze situations and problem solve. It's someone who knows how to work through situations. Now, the designation of the leaders of the church, it's not episcopoi, bishop. It's not presbyteroi, elders. It's not uh, uh, poimenos, pastor. 
its hegumenoi. The only church in the ancient world that referred to its leaders as hegumenoi was in Rome. So once again, you have this interesting connection from key words to Rome. So that suggests that the recipients are in Rome, a group of Jewish believers, and we know that in the early, early days there was a strong contingent of Jewish believers in Rome. So we don't know who wrote it. It was probably written to a group in Rome, but whatever the group was, they were Jewish. They had a tremendous understanding of Old Testament ritual, the Levitical uh, priesthood, Levitical sacrifices, and the writer of Hebrews is going to take all this Old Testament doctrine and is going to weave it together theologically and present a tremendous case for why you and I as believers, why you and I as believers need to stick with the Christian life because if we get into extended carnality, if we bail out, if we give up, there are tremendous consequences, negative consequences, horrible consequences to the believer who fails to persevere to the end. Not that he loses salvation. See, this is one of the problems we'll run into in the book is that there's a lot of folks who read these warning passages and say, oh, see, this is a warning you can lose salvation. It's not a warning about losing salvation. It's a warning that if you give up, if you bail out, if you don't stick with it, you are going to lose privileges and rewards in the millennial kingdom. You are going to give up. You may not even fully grasp what you're going to get and the significance of these rewards in the millennial kingdom, but you are going to jeopardize your future if you bail out of the Christian life in time. So the challenge is to stick with it, not because you'll lose your salvation, but because you'll lose rewards. Rewards and your position and privilege in the eternal kingdom and in the millennial kingdom is part of our incentive for hanging in there when things get tough, when the suffering mounts up, when the adversity intensifies, when we feel like the cosmic system is just about to run over us, put it in reverse, back up and run over us again, and we just want to give up, we just can't understand why all this is happening, the writer to the Hebrews says we have to consider what Jesus Christ did on the cross and what he's doing now in the present session. This is the thrust of this book. I didn't realize this until I went through it the last month, that in almost every chapter there are two or three references to the ascension and session of Christ. This book, unlike any other New Testament epistle, is unpacking for us the significance of Christ's present session. Paul doesn't do that. Paul never even deals with the high priestly role of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is unique to the writer of Hebrews. And what he is telling us is that if you've got problems, if you've got difficulties, if life just seems overwhelming, and you think that that all this stuff about putting doctrine first and studying the Word is, well, that's just somebody's opinion. Somehow I can get by on just a, just a uh, modest understanding of Scripture, and I'm saved, and so I know I'm going to go to heaven. The writer of Hebrews says, don't succumb to that lie. That is a terrible lie. We have to understand who Jesus Christ is, what He accomplished on the cross, and what He's doing right now in the present session. Tremendous doctrine. He unpacks this whole book from an understanding basically of two verses in the Old Testament more than anything else. And that's Psalm 2-7 that identifies Jesus as the one. It's today I have called you uh, my son. And Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. It is those two verses more than anything else that are brought together in the mind of the writer of this this book, and he unpacks this whole book. And see, this matters. This makes a difference. It's not just abstract doctrine or abstract theology. Once you grasp what Jesus Christ is doing right now in the heavenlies at the right hand of God, this is, should change the way you think about everything you're doing in life. It's going to move you past that immature stage of the Christian life into that stage that we call a personal sense of your eternal destiny. This book is going to develop doctrines related to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, His humanity, 
and his deity. It develops ideas related to substitutionary atonement, the blood of Christ. What does that mean? The superiority of his atonement versus the sacrifices of the Old Testament. It's going to develop for us the whole concept of the royal high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it does this in order to encourage believers who are going through intensified suffering to press on to spiritual maturity. The book of Hebrews is one of the most incredible doctrinal expositions that we can study in the New Testament. Now, before I wrap up the introduction, I want to note a few things about Hebrews and canonicity. Hebrews and canonicity. Canonicity is the study of how certain books that were written by Christian leaders came to be included within a standardized uh, collection of books that became the absolute authority for the Christian life. So the concept of a canon, the word canon, comes from a Greek word meaning a rule or a standard. And so you have the canon of the Old Testament and canon of the New Testament. And when we talk about Hebrews and canonicity, it's really important today because canonicity has to do with how you know the truth. If you were here in class the other night, I talked about the fact that epistemology, or how you know what you know, is a crucial battleground today. How do you know? When you say, oh, I believe the Bible's the Word of God, how do you know that? This is where we're being attacked today. This idea that comes along out of some of the liberal scholarship that there are really uh, 20 or 30 other Gospels out there that they have equal right to be included within a canon just because they got overlooked for a couple of thousand years doesn't mean anything. Now we ought to pay more attention to them, the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary, all these other uh, Gnostic Gospels that came along. So canonicity is very important today. Well, one of the first things we note here that I've alluded to already is the use of the Septuagint in Hebrews. The use of the Septuagint in Hebrews. That when the author is quoting from the Old Testament, he always uses the Septuagint in Hebrews. And this indicates that there's, there are a few differences. For example, in Psalm 8.5, we read, You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now, the word translated heavenly beings is the word Elohim in the Masoretic text. That's what was originally written. But in Hebrews 2.7, it translates it, you made him a little uh, lower than the angels. Now, the, the Septuagint used Elohim, I mean, excuse me, the Masoretic text used Elohim, but when they write the translators, the, the rabbis translated that from Hebrew to Greek, Instead of Elohim, gods, they use the Greek word angelos, angels. And so the writer of Hebrews comes along, quotes from the Septuagint version, and and applies that to, to Jesus. Now, does that mean the Septuagint was wrong, that it should have been, I mean, that the Masoretic text was wrong, that it should have been uh, angelos instead of angels? No. But by using the Septuagint, what the writer is doing is taking something that is not wrong. It's just not a correct translation, but it's not wrong doctrine. He is putting his stamp of approval on it and using it to build another doctrine in the New Testament, and that is that Jesus was made lower than the angels in his incarnation. This helps us to understand some things about uh, the Old Testament and about uh, the inspiration of the Old Testament and how God the Holy Spirit still used a translation to communicate truth even when that translation wasn't correct. Now, doesn't that have some interesting application? Because we look at our King James Bible, we look at other translations, we say, well, that's not correct. Nevertheless, God has used the King James Version to bring thousands, millions of Christians, to millions of people, unbelievers, to salvation, and millions of Christians to spiritual maturity by reading that pathetic translation known as the King James Version. How about that? 
So you can learn a tremendous amount of doctrine from reading it. Sure, there's a few places where you're going to scratch your head and, and wonder what that means, like superfluity of naughtiness over there in James chapter 1. But, you know, if you just bypass that and go on and read the text, you can understand all the basics of the spiritual life and grow to spiritual maturity through the uh, King James Version. And that's what all some people ever had. That's what all many pastors ever had in remote corners of the world. And yet they were able to teach solid truth from that, which led their flocks to spiritual maturity. When we get into canonicity, we have to realize the support of the Old Testament given by the writer of Hebrews. There are 35 direct quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. 35 direct quotations, usually introduced by the formula, God said or he said, indicating his view that this is written by God. There are, on top of that, 53 allusions to Old Testament statements. This is not a direct quotation, but simply a, a, an allusion, a summation of something that, is, that was written uh, in the Old Testament, which makes a, le- a total of at least 88 references to the Old Testament. Every chapter in Hebrews has multiple references to the Old Testament. In fact, chapter 1 is almost completely quotations from the Old Testament. When we come to canonicity, we realize that this book was one of the most disputed. And by disputed, I don't mean that, that, um, that it shouldn't have been included, but that there were certain criteria used in the early church, and one was that it had apostolic, it was written by an apostle. Well, they didn't know who wrote it, so they weren't sure about it. They didn't know to whom it was written, so they weren't sure about that. So, but from the very early days of the church, before the close of the canon even, we know that it was, was recognized as authoritative. I've already mentioned this several times. Clement of Rome, who was the leader of the church in Rome, in 95 A.D. wrote an epistle to the Corinthians which showed tremendous dependence upon uh, the book of Hebrews. He, In fact, in, if you read First Clement, I won't take the time to do that. I have a quote here. He, he strings together a series of quotations that are uh, directly from the first chapter of Hebrews. He uses numerous expressions that are lifted directly out of the book of Hebrews. In his epistle to the Corinthians, he presents Jesus as the Son and the High Priest, themes that are unique to Hebrews. And this use shows that he viewed Hebrews as an authoritative work for the Christian life. Justin Martyr, who lived in the first half of the second century, Irenaeus, who flourished towards the end of the second century, Gaius of Rome, who ministered around 200, Hippolytus, who also ministered between about 190 and 236, all recognized the inherent authority of Hebrews in their writings, but they didn't hold to Pauline authorship. In the Eastern Church, uh, Pantanus, who lived about 180, Clement of Alexandria, who was his pupil, who uh, taught around 200 to 220, as well as Origen, who uh, taught between 200 and 254, all viewed Hebrews as authoritative. But in the Eastern Church, they all thought Paul wrote it. Furthermore, Hebrews was included among the Pauline epistles in a, uh, in a papyrus, called P46 or the Chester Beatty Papyri, which is dated to the early 200s. So it's clear that the early church accepted Hebrews as, as authoritative, but they weren't sh- as sure about it as they were about other books. And so it wasn't until the late 200s to early 300s that it's clearly accepted as authoritative. And why was it accepted as authoritative? Because it passed the performance test. See, if, if, if you're talking about Paul's epistle to the Romans, that was well known and you knew Paul wrote it. But when it comes to Hebrews, you had to base acceptance totally on its internal makeup, on the doctrine that it taught. 
and it passed the performance test. And because it was accepted and used and studied throughout the churches in both the eastern and western part of the Roman Empire, it was clearly accepted as authoritative and finally recognized as See, most people get the idea that the canon books were accepted in the canon because a group of men got together and said, okay, these are accepted and these aren't. And just the opposite happened. When they finally met in church councils towards the end of the 4th century and into the 5th century, they were simply validating what was happening in reality. They were simply saying, yes, these are the books that are used and these aren't. So that it was a, a more of a recognition of authority than an, a, a declaration of authority. Well, next time we'll come back, we'll look at the book as a whole in terms of its organization. And next Thursday night, what I will do is teach through the entire book of Hebrews in an hour. Because I want you to get that understanding of how this thing fits together. And this is just a tremendous work of organization and thought and structure. Uh, the writer just had a had an incredible mind as he wove these different doctrines and rituals together in order to uh, build a case for the deity and the humanity of Christ, his high priesthood, what's happening in the, in the session, and what that means to us in our everyday spiritual life. So we'll do that next Thursday night. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word this evening. We pray that you would uh, challenge us as we go through this book that we might uh, be uh, recognize that we need to, to pursue a higher standard in our own spiritual life, that we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard, that we might push on to spiritual maturity and not, not cave into mediocrity in our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.